This message by Jake Simmons was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jake serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Well, good morning. Wonderful to be together. You can go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Micah as we continue our series in the Minor Prophets, and hopefully as we continue in this series, it's become easier to locate them in your Bibles, and I hope even more than locating them, you've benefited from how, what, seeing the truth about God, what we've titled this series, God's passion for His people. And, and just to be clear, my name is Jake Simmons, and now Jake Cronin has caused a little problem. You can refer to me as Big Jake and to him as Little Jake. <laughs> this past week, Bill preached to us from the book of Obadiah, where the focus and attention of the prophet was on the nation of Edom as a godless nation, a nation that was not part of God's people. Whereas this morning, as we study the book of Micah, the prophet's attention and God's attention has turned to his people to the people of God. God's attention is solely and squarely on the people of God. The Jewish prophet Micah preached during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. They were kings of Judah. These kings would have ruled from about 750 to 687 B.C. And Micah gives us the, the clearest statement of why he came. In Micah 3.8, he says this. He says, But as for me, Micah, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So as you would imagine, Micah was liked by all. He was very welcomed. Yet while his words may not have been very palatable during his day, they were needed. They were necessary he had a message that the people of God needed to hear. He had a message that we, this day, in the year 2021, we need to hear. Here is a brief snapshot of what Micah addresses throughout the book, dealing with the transgression of Jacob and the sin of Israel. Here is what they have given themselves to. They have given themselves to idolatry, to the worship of false gods. They, the wealthy have been stealing property from the poor. From their own people, from their own tribes, they, they have used crooked practices. They have used corrupt business practices for personal gain. The leadership of the nations, they were corrupt both in spiritual and civil arenas. And so the people of Israel, the nation, they are in a bad way. And what they need is a prophet from God to come and proclaim to them the truth. So Micah is a collection of... Not all of what Micah had to say, but what we need to hear today. What God said, this is what my people need to hear from the prophet with what happened during this time. And, and there's this cycle, this reoccurring system that Micah has in his writing where he talks about the, a warning, he has a prophecy of judgment, and then there's a promise of salvation. So we're going to fast forward not beginning in chapter 1, but we're going to actually focus our time in Micah 6. So if you can turn your attention to Micah 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. 
So please look on with me as I now have the privilege to read and for you to hear God's word. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Bala king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Baor answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? Amen. Author and theologian Greg Bill shares a story in one of his books where he describes going to a dentist to have his teeth cleaned. And like many, he had not been in a very long time, and during a break, he noticed this poster on the wall, and he began to study it and look at it. It was a poster on gum disease, and you could just see the progression from healthy gums to gums that were pretty much rotten. And once the hygienist came back, he began to ask the condition of his gums with regards to the picture of the poster. The hygienist said that they were headed to the pictures of rotten gums. Bill, surprised by this statement, communicated to her that his gums, they felt perfectly fine. But she said, this is the genius of gum disease. It doesn't hurt until it's too late. Bill said that this shocked him back into the reality that he needed to brush his teeth twice a day and floss to get some healthy teeth. Micah, like a dentist that is hard to visit, that at times can be hard to hear, is bringing a diagnosis that the people of Israel need to hear. He is wanting the nations to wake up and see that there is a judgment coming, that God will not be mocked by their idolatrous worship and their sinful living. In the midst of this judgment, Micah is saying that there is a way out, that there, are, there is a way of salvation. There is a promise that you can hold on to. But the genius and the deceitfulness of our sin is that at times we don't see our need for salvation until it's too late. And so Micah wants to wake us up. Micah wants to help us see where we are in our souls. Micah is addressing the people of God. And as we will see, these are people who have heard the story of God's great salvation. They are aware of who God is. They have heard 
of what He has done. They are acquainted with His ways. Yet they have turned from their God. They are walking in persistent and unrepentant sin. Micah will see the fall of the northern kingdom in his lifetime. He will see the people of Israel be taken over by Assyria. And in our chapter this morning, he wants to address the southern kingdom of Judah. And he wants to warn them of their similar fate unless they repent of the Lord. And while Micah's teaching is hard, it is needed. And what we need is not only to hear the judgment and the warning that Micah has, but there is a glorious message of salvation. There is a promise. There is not only judgment, but there is hope. There is sure hope that he has. And I believe if I could summarize what I want to say, what I believe what Micah would want to say this morning is for us to set your hope fully on God who has worked wondrously for you. Set your hope fully on God who has worked wondrously for you. And so we will consider this and unpack it in three points, walking through Micah 6, 1 through 8. The first point, God calls a trial. So we begin by seeing the voice of the Lord cries out. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountain. There is obviously a dispute here. God is going to bring charges against Israel. And according to Old Testament law, one would need two to three witnesses when charging someone. And so God, who does he invite to come? Well, he invites the mountains to come. He invites the enduring foundations to come and hear what I have to say. Witness what I'm about to present to this people. And he calls them here because the mountains and the enduring foundations were there when God gave and went into a covenant relationship with Israel. They were a witness to it. And so God has called them once again to come and hear my indictment and see and be a witness to the charges that I am bringing to these people. But it's interesting, if you look, the Lord does not then turn to make a list of accusations against the people like you would see in a normal trial. What the Lord begins to do is that he begins to ask questions. He, he begins to ask rhetorical questions, one after the other. This feels in some ways more like a discussion between a family member, a husband and a wife, a father and a child, more so than a sterile, without emotion courtroom. Let's look at how the Lord communicates with his people. See, he begins by saying, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Notice that the Lord here, he is calling them his people. He is reminding them that they are his. He is wanting them to remember that he is their God, that he is for them. He wants them to answer him. He is calling on them. He is inviting and reminding them of what he has done. What he is doing in some ways in this interaction between God and Israel. Have you ever had an argument where it was just consistently questions? 
this back and forth between you and a spouse. You know what I mean? No one really makes an obvious statement, so it goes like this. Honey, have you ever considered taking out the trash instead of letting it overflow? Well, sweetie, why don't you just help and take out the trash yourself? Well, baby, why don't you start putting the diapers in a separate bag? Well, dear, why don't you change more diapers? But, but do you see what I mean? There is this back and forth with these questions. There is this interaction that's going on that I believe in a similar way is happening with God and Israel right now. God here says that he is contending for Israel. He is wanting to ask them questions. And in a moment, after we consider what God has to say, we will look at what the people of Israel has to say. God here is addressing his people. In, in verse 3, he says, Oh, my people. In verse 5, he says, Oh, my people. At the end of verse 3, he says, Answer me. There is an emotional plea here from the Lord in calling his people to help him understand how he has wearied them. How have I made your life so difficult, Israel? How have I made your life so, so hard, Judah, that now you are turning away from my ways and going to other gods and turning to other laws and obeying other things other than my word. And what God begins to do is he presents a laundry list. He begins to remind them not, this is interesting, he doesn't say, okay, now here, here's my list. Here's what everything that you have done. No, God does not begin there. What God does is he says, here's a laundry list of what I have done for you. Let me remind you of what I have done. Here are the acts, the mighty acts of salvation that I have done. So let's look at these. He reminds them of the Exodus. He says he brings them, he, of, the, of him bringing them out of their bondage and slavery under Pharaoh and providing them with leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I gave you leaders. I gave you Moses. I didn't leave you to yourself. I gave you Moses who presented the law and taught you the law. I gave you Aaron who was the priest who helped you be reconciled to me and made offerings. I gave you Miriam so that she would be a prophetess, that she would be declaring my word, that she would be singing and dance before the Lord, that she would instruct the women. I provided for you. I didn't just save you, but I gave you what you needed. Do you, do you remember that? Do you see that? The Lord then moves on to two other accounts, some that you may not as be familiar with. After this, he reminds them of Balak, king of Moab, how he devised what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. He says that Balaam was a prophet that Balak, the king of Moab, hired to curse Israel. But instead of cursing Israel, God did it, worked it to where Balaam blessed Israel. And not just once, twice, three, but four times. And God redirected and kept Balaam alive and helped him to bless the people through speaking through a donkey. God did that. God is the one that had rescued them and made them his people through these mighty acts. And then lastly, he reminds them of Shittim to Gilgal, how they were trying to cross the River Jordan, but they couldn't. They were stuck they had nowhere to go. How are we going to do this? But then God, he parts the waters and they're able to make their way through the water. They were able to cross. They were able to come 
to the promised land. This whole journey became symbolic of God making a way for his people. He provided for them. Believe the Lord is... (laughs) He's not wanting this morning to begin by presenting our sin before us. Believe the Lord this morning is wanting to say, here's the problem, is that you, you know way too much about who you are. You don't know enough about me. You have forgotten who your God is. And just like the people of Israel, we can forget. We can not remember what God has done for us. Have you spent time this week just rehearsing and celebrating and just sitting in? It doesn't have to be for three hours, but have you just taken a moment where you're just reminded of God's love towards you? Have you been able just to remember that God is for you? Have you been able to to look back on your week or maybe your month or maybe the year and just say, Lord, you have proven your faithfulness? Or maybe it's if, if you're in a hard time and you're just fighting for faith, you just remember, God, here's what I can always go back to. Here's what I can always remember. Here's what you have done for me that declares that you are for me is that you have rescued me from my sin. You have set your spirit within me. You have pledged your love for me by sending your own son to die on the cross for my sin. But we forget. I forget. And whenever we begin to drift away from God and forget his mighty acts, it's not that we just stand in a neutral place and that we just kind of hang out. No, we begin to drift away from God. We begin to drift away to the world. We begin to drift away from truth and into lies. We begin, instead of loving what God loves, we begin to, to hate what God loves. We begin to do what he hates. We get, and we begin to be deceived. We need reminders. When we're more aware of what we want or how we have felt or how God has felt us, what this breeds is discontent. And when we have discontent, when it enters into our heart, we begin to question the very thing that we have staked our lives on. The thing, the God that has made us, the very thing that makes life so meaningful, that makes life so beautiful, that makes life so worth living, we begin to question it. We begin to to possibly even want to move on from it. But God in his mercy and grace, he gets back up in our grill. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance and he reminds us, don't forget this. You want to know why Jesus gave us communion as Bill helpfully reminded us because he knew we would need something to remember him by. Something to hold in our hands. Something to put in our mouth. Something to say, Lord, I remember this. I can taste and see that you are good. I don't want to forget this. We don't want to forget our God. And he doesn't want us to forget him. He wants us to see before it's too late. May we hear his voice this morning. May we hear his invitation to come and to enjoy and to taste and to see that he is good. Second point, the plea of the people. Micah 6, 6 through 7, the the people's response, sadly, they say, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. I'm guessing some of you, not all of you, will know the name Andre Agassi. 
He is a famous tennis player. He retired in 2006, and after a 21-year career with a, I mean, he, he had quite the list of accomplishments. Eight Grand Slam titles. He won a gold medal in the 96 Olympics, 61 career titles. Tennis was his life. It was what he ate, drank, and slept. It made him millions. It brought him fame. It was, he was number one in the world. Yet, in his memoir that he titled Open, he begins by making this surprising revelation. He writes, I play tennis for a living, even though I hate tennis. I hate it with a dark, secret passion and always have. It's an incredible memoir, autobiography. Not even a huge tennis fan, but I was able to follow and understand and just look at his life. And um, one thing that it shows is that in Agassiz's heart, there was just this love-hate relationship with tennis. He just, he, he had given his body to it. I mean, he, at 36 years old, he said his body felt like a 96-year-old getting out of bed. I mean, he had just spent his life, two decades of sprinting, stopping on a dime, jumping high, landing hard. He says, my body no longer feels like my body. So he gave himself to this, and it, and it appeared that he liked it, yet in his heart. And what he would say is that he hated it. And the reason I share that and the point behind this is that the people of Israel's response, after God declares what he has done for them, after he has declared his mighty acts, the first thing that come from the people of Israel are questions about, well, what do we need to do? What do we need to bring? What is it that's going to make you happy? And, and, and in so responding this way to God, they are revealing that they really don't understand or love the God who has rescued them. In, in asking these questions, it may appear in reading of the text that these are thoughtful, that these are kind questions, that the people of Israel are really saying like, hey, we're willing to do this and to give this, but in actuality, after rehearsing the great works of God and what He has done and, and who He is, instead of humbling themselves, they just say, okay, what do you need us to do? What do you need to be paid? You seem upset, God. Seem like there's something wrong. So what do you want? You want some burnt offerings? How about, how about some calves? How about this river of oil? You see, what it revealed is that the people of Israel, instead of seeing their need to be changed, what they wanted to do was change God. Instead of seeing that what was going on and what needed to be addressed was their own hearts, what they wanted to do was look to God and say, yeah, God, you did all that. Thanks a lot. So what can we do now? How can we pay you? And what that reveals about them is that they don't get it. Is that their hearts have been hardened. That, that, that they are missing what, what they were saved for. What God saved them from. What he wants. God was not interested in their sacrifices. God was interested in their hearts. What he wanted was to see them come under his salvation and, and not say, what do you want? What God wants is just for us to say, you're right, God. Thank you. You did this. I need to humble myself before you. What I need is not, there's nothing in my hands that I can bring. 
what I can do is look to you. Outwardly, it can appear that they are making these wonderful sacrifices, but inwardly, they are continuing to rebel against God. This has merely become a transactional relationship. Okay, God, you did this for us, so now what can we do for you? You do this, we do this, and we're good, right? I mean, there, there is laws in that they are following that prevents them and restricts them from offering their firstborn as a sacrifice. Yet the last thing they say is, hey, well, you want our firstborn? You want us just to give you our firstborn? All these things they're grasping for. It just shows they're blind. It just shows their hearts are hardened. It just shows that, that although they are walking and giving their lives to God and their name, and they are called the people of Judah, the tribe, the tribe that God loves and is for, their hearts are far from Him. These people They praise me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. That's what what God wants them to see. That's what we need to see this morning. So this is a good moment. This is where we stop. It's easy for us to see this in other people and say, yep, yep, they, they proclaim, they love God with their mouths, but evidently their life is far, their life does not honor God. No, we don't point the finger, we begin with ourselves. And we say, God, search me and know me. The Lord wants us to see our need for Him. In what ways are we relating this way to God? Is the focus of your relationship more on what you need or have to be doing for God? Maybe the temptation is to think you need to be doing more. It's never enough. God would be more pleased with me if I would just stop this besetting sin or if I would just have more consistent Bible reading or if I just wouldn't get so angry or battle lustful thoughts or constantly compare myself. God, what do you want from my life? What can I give you? We can can make those same offerings to God. We can just say, Lord, I'll, I'll do these things, but just I want this. Just I just want you to... I just feel like you're not happy with me. I just, I just want to do these things to make you happy. And the Lord's just like, hey, remember everything I've done for you. The best thing that you can do is not make life about you, but make it about me. That's what God is pleading with his people is that the people of Israel, it's a lot about the people of Israel, the people of Judah. God is saying it's actually supposed to be about me. You're my nation. You're my nation. So we evaluate our hearts. We want to make sure that we get this correct. Do you enjoy God? That's a great question. Do you enjoy God? Do you believe that God wants you to enjoy Him? Do you want more of God? Or is it more just you want to satisfy God enough to where you can kind of, you, He's okay, He's happy, so then I can go do my own thing? Or is it to where I want as God will give us, and he is ready. I, I totally agree with what Jen Jap said this morning, that what he wants is he wants to fill that envelope. He wants to take himself and give us himself. He doesn't want anything else in that envelope. You know why? Because he loves us. What he wants to do is say, here, here am I. Put it in there. Seal it. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. Amen. (laughs) 
Uh, we have to evaluate our hearts. We have to make sure we get this correct. We, we, God is not looking for our perfect performance. And this is where when we come to Micah 6, 8, there is a context around this that we have to make sure we get correct. Micah responds, he, after hearing what the Israel of the people of Israel have to say, look what he says. He, has, he says, he has told you, oh man, what is good. He has told you. I mean, so, so he is saying, like, what is the question here, people, the people of Judah? Hey, what's the problem? He has told you. He has told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? To walk humbly with our God means that the focus is on God and not on us and on what He wants and not what we want. The temptation is when, when we can pull this verse out of context and what we begin to miss and what we begin to do again is to begin to make a list of what we have to do to please God and to show that we are part of the people of God. But what Micah is doing here is that he is encapturing. He is telling these people, remember I have told you this. You are to love me and love your neighbor. That is essentially what Micah is saying here. You are to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you are to love your neighbor. Micah is not looking for us in to do justice, to do total world change. But he is asking, are you fair? Not, are the people down the street fair, but are you fair? We should be. When we are in the position to do so, we should be able to render fair and impartial judgments. So we don't steal, we don't bribe, we don't cheat. And at all times, in whatever calling, we should do good and not evil. Do you love to help people? Do you love kindness? Do you love mercy? Do you go out of your way to help others. That's what he's saying is that you make life not about you, but how you can help others. So do you, do you look out for those? Are you fair? Do you honor people? Do you do justice? Do you fight for people no matter their status? Remember there, there, there are the wealthy taking from land from the poor. He's saying, do you do that? Don't do that. We love justice. We love fairness. Why? Because we're walking humbly with our God. And God has said to do that. We are God's people. So we do that. Do we love others as God has loved us? God has loved us lavishly. He has given us Himself. He has poured Himself on us to, to save us and rescue us. We love mercy because God loves mercy. We love justice because God loves justice. But most importantly, what Micah ends with, do you walk humbly with your God? Is God calling the shots? Is His word, His law, when we come into His people, it's meaning that we are following you and what you have to say. You set the agenda. But yet it is so easy in hearing this to feel like, okay, this is what I have to do. And if I don't do this in a certain way, then I am not obeying God. And I think what we have to remember with this call, and when God tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is the first thing we have to say is, I can't do that. I am unable to do that. But God is not wanting your performance. Remember, He's wanting your heart. God is wanting you to love what He loves. What God is 
wanting you to see is that I want your heart disposition to be walking humbly with me. And that means that in your life, what I will see is that you will love justice when you are able to be just and that you will be fair and that you will love kindness and you will love mercy. But ultimately, our hope can't be in that. The ultimate hope of the people of Israel is in God's mighty acts of salvation, not in how they walk this out. They walk this out because of what God has done for them. He has rescued them and he has made them his people. In and of yourself, you will not be able, and myself, you will not be able to do justice like you should and love kindness like you should and walk humbly with God like you should. We have all fallen short. We have all sinned against God, but here is the good news. What we could not do with burnt offerings, what we could not do with rivers of oil, what we could not accomplish by giving our firstborn for our transgression, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man, and he offered him once for all so that now we can say we are his people And we love what he loves. And we're not just doing external things. The beauty of the new covenant and Christ's coming is that God changes our hearts. He gives us new hearts. He fills us with his spirit. So here's the good news. I can only do these things when I go to the cross. Only there I can do what is just. Only at the cross I love the mercy of God. Only at the cross, I behold the humility of God. In Jesus, I can do justly. In Jesus, I can love mercy. And in Jesus, I can walk in humility. It is in Jesus. It it turns our attention from having to do this to that we get to do this. It's not that I have to be just, that I have to be fair, that I have to love kindness, that I have to, it's that I get to. It's that I love to. It's that there's nothing in my life that brings me more joy than living this way. And it's not because I'm a great person. It's because that I'm living for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is my king. And this is what I love about Micah. He just ends in celebration. In Micah 7, Point three, who is a God like you? Micah, after rehearsing, after seeing God's judgment, after considering his promises, and after seeing his salvation, what does Micah want to do? Well, being a believer, he wants to sing, and he wants to worship, and he wants to declare and celebrate God's great promise and God's great salvation that he has promised. See, what you have to remember, though, is Micah is about to see The northern kingdom fall. Exile is imminent. The people of God are coming and crushing. Yet throughout this story, throughout this book, Micah said there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be somebody that God preserves. A people that he promises to bring through this. And out of that, he's going to bring a king. He's going to a king that comes from Bethlehem. He's going to rule the nations. And he's going to be a shepherd-like king and save the world. Against this black drop of judgment and sin and tyranny and just wrongness, sinfulness in the people of Israel, the northern and southern tribes, Micah begins to celebrate and declare. Here's what he says, Micah 7, 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God, he will hear me. 
like when you go to the jewelry store, they put a black, there's this back, backdrop that's black and dark and bleak. They pull it out, they pull out their stone, they want you to look at this stone, it sparkles, it shines against this black, black backdrop. Micah has presented this black backdrop in Micah, but, but he's pulled out these stones. Look at this stone. Look at this promise of salvation. Look at this stone. This is coming. Now, now look at this one right here. This is another promise of salvation. And he just he pulls out all these stones. And, he, and, and what he's doing is that he's not looking at the bleak background anymore. He's fixated on these stones. And he's saying, oh, I'm waiting for this. I am waiting for the promise of God. I am waiting for the salvation of God. I am trusting and waiting that God will do this. And we too, we have seen God's salvation. We have seen what he has done. He has given us his son. He has given us the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are waiting for his return. And we are looking to him. And though at times things may look bleak, and though at times things you may be struggling in your soul, and you may be fighting with a besetting sin, you can remember and preach to yourself that there is hope. There is this jewel that God wants you to study. It's his son. It's what he's done. It's the message of salvation. It's why we gather as a church is to proclaim his name. You want to know what he's done? Well, here, here Micah had a really a wonderful song that he sang. And this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus fulfilled. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? That is the meaning of Micah's name. Who is a God like you? How he begins, Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? For the remnant of his inheritance, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. I love that he ends with Abraham. The promise of Abraham, it's to the nations. Everybody's going to know this salvation, not just the people of Israel. Here's the good news is that the judgment were for the people of Israel, but the promises, they are for us. Praise God that he does, the judgment is not for us, but the promises are. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Richard Sibbs writes, he is more ready, Jesus is more ready to forgive than you to sin. As there is a continual spring of wickedness in you, so there is a greater spring of mercy in God. You believe that? It's true. He has thrown your sins into the depths of the sea. When God throws your sin into the sea of forgetfulness, he puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. I didn't come up with that. So, let us set our hope. May we set our hope on the wondrous works of God. He has done a mighty work. And instead of swimming in an ocean of our sin and judgment, let's swim in an ocean of grace that God invites us to come to enjoy. Let's set our lives on that and let's enjoy Him and let's know Him and let's remember Him and let us declare that He is our God, that He is our salvation. Mighty things He has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word and this needed reminder. I thank You that You are a God who is faithful. You have promised that You 
would fulfill and do that, the salvation that we need. And Lord, we have seen your salvation in the coming and the sending of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as a church, that even today and tomorrow, that we would remember your mighty works and deeds, that your grace would be greater than our sin, that we would be a people who do love justice and who do love kindness and mercy, and that we want to walk humbly with you because of of what you have done in our hearts, Lord. You are good. You are faithful. Help us to hope in you, to build our lives on you. We trust you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jake Simmons during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.